This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we are going to decode wine bottles for you with the help of a Harvard psychologist. And it's probably not what you think. Rick, I have been trying to get you to see a psychologist for years. Uh, we could use the help. I could certainly use the help. And a guy from Harvard. But tragically, this is not that kind of help. Oh, man. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're going to explain what some of those wine description back labels mean in what they're telling us. It's a kind of a code. A secret code. A secret code. We also have some horrible wine writing that might make you smack your head with beechwood. <laughs> One of our listeners' questions could make you rethink cherries. And as always, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And today we are talking about the back labels and wine descriptions and what they might be a code for. We also have a bit of news that might make Paul go ballistic. Ballistic? What do you mean ballistic? <laughs> I never go ballistic! What's wrong with you, Rick? I'm a calm guy! That's what I always say. Actually, Paul, this is your old nemesis, the phrase handcrafted. Oh, my God. See what I mean about ballistic, folks? That happens. <laughs> actually, oh, no. actually, this is really intriguing stuff. It comes from a Harvard psychology PhD candidate. His name is Mark Allen Thornton. He's in Harvard's Social Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Lab. I have no idea what I that means. I was going to say, I'm already confused. Uh, it, it, what it means, he's a smart guy. His parents are both wine microbiologists at Fresno State. So he's got How some. How cool is that? Yeah, I know. Yeah. So the, the man has credibility, and his parents have credibility. It's so unlike us. <laughs> <laughs> what he did was this. He compared the text on the back. Well, I'm actually going out the wrong way. He took wines that lots of critics liked, and yes. then he took wines that lots of what he considered regular consumers. They're folks on wine.com, so they're slightly above sure. average. They, they take it seriously, yeah. at least. A and what bit. he did is yeah. he took their ratings, and he took the top 1% and the bottom 1%. So these are wines people really love and wines people really hate. Right. He has a lot of wines in here. I, I don't know exactly what the number is, but it's very high. Then he went backwards, and he said, okay, what words on the back of wine bottle labels correlate with wines that people hated and with wines people liked? And, and what you're going to tell me. What he found was the important larger theme is that he found a real consistency. Uh -huh. in, in the Good. cases of both, that, that it wasn't just a little bit, that these yep. guys that loved and hated stood out. And then here's the thing that you, you're you going to love, Paul. Everybody hang on. People, The wines that say handcrafted. In they the, love them, huh? They love them. They love well, them. you know, they're handcrafted. They, that's, that's why. So what's not to like? <laughs> yes. If anybody's listened to the show more than once, you know that <laughs> neither one of us, but Paul in particular, does not like the term handcrafted because how do you unhandcraft a wine? How do you machine make a wine? Yeah, That's right. The funny part of it, so Paul's a marketing guy. He's a professional marketer. He's a very successful professional marketer. Some people might wonder why, but nonetheless, <laughs> he's very good at it, and he's always trying to get his clients to not use the phrase handcrafted because it means nothing, and they just they feel like they must. You know what? I've changed my opinion. I'm going to get them to use If that's what consumers want, <laughs> well, if they want to buy a handcrafted wine, who am I to say they shouldn't get one? Well, or maybe it's the way around. Remember, this is the phrases that winemakers or, or wine companies use that correlate with the things that people like and don't like. Right. Yeah, so yeah. with a couple exceptions, nobody likes, both critics or the regular folk, liked wine that had lots of flavor descriptors. 
the kind of wine writing you and I make fun of. They don't like that. They don't like that. I'm shocked, I tell you. I know. Shocked. I know. You mean, Rick, you and I could be right. It makes... The, the Stop earth trembles. The <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's true. There were a couple exceptions. Red wines that were described with coffee flavors correlated to wines that, that people liked. Well, because people drink coffee. It's true. And, yeah. and wines. They don't that, drink Charolais melon or Charente <laughs> Char- Char- melon. Yes, with, and they with, don't drink. With hints of mulberry. That's right. Yeah. yeah, they don't drink notes of cassis, but they do drink <laughs> coffee. Yeah. So maybe that's one that resonates well, with them. Well, and it did, it did correlate with, although there's another word you're not fond of, and, uh, but it, critics like wines that had, the wines that they like correlated with wines that were described as espresso and mineral. Okay. So, and nobody knows what mineral means, but, so that's really perfect right there. Well, I, it, it, there is, yes. This, yeah, and you wonder, <laughs> because it, it, critics also like, in white wines, critics like brioche, which uh-huh. is toast, but they like the, they like the high-end stuff, right. and minerality. Right. When it comes to our little history segment on the show today, I want to talk a little bit about brioche. Okay. Yeah. And people liked wines that were described with peach. Did they like peachy wines? Uh, they didn't like peach wines, but wines that describe that have a description of peach. A peach. So now remember what this is. These are, in a way, <laughs> what, how this is useful to you as a consumer, I'm going to guess, if you find yourself in agreement with sort of what wine.com and the larger group of you know, kind of wine drinkers. These are code words that mean things that you're – they don't necessarily mean peach, but they tend to signify wines – that, that go well with people. This is a little bit like when you buy the paint for your bathroom and it is described as gilded daffodil. And it's just yellow, but you got to come up with something better than yellow. So you invent these terms. And so peach to people means it's going to taste good. Gilded daffodil. Oh, I think so. I like that. And so this is the thing that you can also know is that sometimes the, the, the scrippers that wine companies use – are to signify they end, they end up no these they are end up the same kind of wine. People off. Yeah. So one of them is red. <clears throat> I think that's brilliant. You they, got a red wine. They all you agree. tell people it's red, red and yeah. everybody says, Well, yeah. I don't want that one. Yeah. It's red. Um, <laughs> and, and both people and critics like wines that were described as powerful. Right. So and that is that makes some sense. So you know the critics sometimes argue against powerful wines. Right. But it turns out they actually like them. It's not just the word now, remember, these right. are the wines that were described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but I'm still I still want to talk about red. Why would they use red? <laughs> well, I mean, you got a red wine, and then you say it's red, and they don't buy it because it's red? Yeah. Uh, that's one. That's just, boy, I think you need more than a Harvard psychologist to figure that one well, out. Well, there was a, a couple of stories about this and yep. then a, 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 a large abstract on his. So right. I didn't see all of the details of his research, but I wonder what some of those re- labels said about well, red wines. You know, like, the other thing is I wonder if it was red in reference to fruits. So you're drinking red a, a red wine, and he's saying it has red fruit. Because remember, one of the words they that don't, people really like is black fruit. Yes, they don't like red red fruit, fruit, right? No, so that may be it. Okay, okay. See, we're figuring this out. Yeah, Uh, somebody needs to figure us out, actually. (laughs) So another thing that came up, words that come up that people didn't like the wines when they were described as acidity or acid or tart or crisp or freshness or liveliness. Wow. So this tells you something. This tells you why uh, not to pick on this wine. This tells you why a wine like Rombauer is so popular because those weren't be, wouldn't be terms that those you would like. Those are not like. terms you used to describe People that. tend to some, like that in the white wines. They like that lushness. They like the smoothness, maybe the hint of sweetness that wines of Romero well, Jackson. This is just changed my opinion entirely because I was sure there was a group of consumers out here who actually liked wines that were described as fresh, lively, You would think. Crisp. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do too. Uh, <laughs> and odd, of course. Odd, oddly enough that 
Critics also did not like the wines that were described that way. Refreshing and fresh didn't work for critics. Which is funny because they I know it. that critics use those terms in a positive way. Yes, yes. And but, yet— And the wines themselves—so so what it tells you is even though they, there is this sense that you know, when somebody— you you wonder what's going on here. You wonder if that is not we are calling this wine refreshing and fresh because it's not. <laughs> well, we're or, calling it refreshing and fresh because that's all we can say about yeah, it. Yeah, because that's all we can say about that's it. That's right. right. Right, right. Well, it could be that. Yeah. Wines, okay. Wines that were described rich, velvety, supple, smooth Yep. were wines that, that the the regular folks really liked. You know, this reminds me a little bit my my late father. When you served him a red wine, he had pretty much a, a toggle switch on-off. He either liked it or he didn't. And the real, real defining question. Smooth. Is it smooth? Yep. yep. Well, That's it. Is it smooth? Absolutely. And it's a question I get a lot. I, I've had it to, you know, yeah. wines. Are they asking you why you're not smooth? Right? Is, that, <laughs> yes. is that the question you get no, a lot? they say, hey, you're a smooth dude. <laughs> <laughs> How did you and, get so smooth, And then, and then a, a, a bass guitar strums in the background. <laughs> and I, yeah. Matt, cue the music. Get him off this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, but it, that is actually a thing, and it's funny because often um, wine, you know, the the snooty wine types, yes, and and they 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 scorn people who like smooth wines. And well, if you like fact, it, yeah. In fact, I'm quite sure that critics don't use smooth. I'm quite sure you are right. Smooth yeah. is not a cool word for a wine snob. That's a that's a common term that just normal people would use. A, a cool wine snob would never use smooth. You know, here's one that I absolutely like, and this is a great example of, of wine companies using a kind of code. Yes. Nobody, neither the critics nor the regular folks, liked wines that had food pairing suggestions on the back. And, uh -huh. the, and the suggestion they hated most, the word that showed up I most— I know what this word is. Guess. Pasta. Yep. Yeah. It's pasta. Yeah. <laughs> it's pasta. This is what you put on the back of a label when you think this wine Great isn't good for anything else. Yeah. Drink it with the drink it with a plate of spaghetti. Yeah. Drink it with a pizza and forget about it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, food friendly was also not very popular with regular folks. And yeah. you know, and that's a funny term. We've had lots of questions about food friendly over the months that we've been doing this. Yep. I suspect if as we continue we'll continue to get more questions and it's an interesting thing. But it those those are wines they tend to be leaner, they tend to be less smooth. I think, frankly, I don't think it's a question of food friendly being a bad thing. I think it's that most people have no idea what food friendly means. Does it mean that it, the wine jumps into the glass, jumps out of the glass and leans over the plate and says, "Hi there, steak. How you doing?" Yeah. I don't think people know what food friendly means. And so I've, I've they seen see wine it. do that. <laughs> you see it on the yeah. back of a label, and I think people just say, I got no idea what this means. <laughs> yes. Sometimes the wine flirts with the steak. <laughs> flirts with the yeah, steak. That's, that's right. I've seen it a little Yeah, lot. but it flirts with the steak, but he sleeps with the lobster. <laughs> <laughs> Always the case. Um, there was a few other things that showed up there. One of them was critics like wines that had the large, great perfection exceptional wine descriptions and you can yeah, imagine because because wineries will put that on when they think the wine will live up to it i think that's one of the words they're gonna get caught if they don't yep. so there's these were probably big sophisticated wines people liked wines that were described as rich refined and multi-layered and that also makes some sense so rick don't you think we could why not have a contest we could ask everyone who listens to the show how many we got now? Five, six? I think we're up to seven. We could give them this list and say, put together your best and worst wine description based on this information right here. So on the one hand, we would have a, a red wine that is described as not red, 
with flavors of coffee, peach, um, let's see, rich, velvety, supple, smooth, rich, refined, and multi-layered. <laughs> it sounds like a horrible wine writing okay? segment. And yeah. it doesn't go with pasta. And it doesn't go with pasta. See, well, uh, we could do this. I, I think we, we should. I, I also think that if we asked them to describe us, they'd come up with some of these words like exceptional, perfection, refined, and multi-layered. Yes, but those people aren't listening to us. Not, no, but I, I'm going <laughs> to call it as our description. This is Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We will have some refined and multi-layered questions when we return. Stay with us. This is Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We are about to take some questions. Uh, that means we uh, open a mailbag, as I'm calling it anyway. If you'd like to ask us a question, uh, you can uh, you can go to Rick and Paul. Wine, all one word, rickandpaulwine.com. Uh, we will use your name or not as you prefer. You can also look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe with, with just one little free click. If you're new to us, by the way, and you want to know what a Harvard psychologist might use to explain us, I got no he idea. would be mystified. He would. He he would be mystified. He would. Yes, I. You know, I, our our engineer Matt Bassini suggested he would describe us as handcrafted. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably right. I would also describe Paul as a respected industry pro, or as I say, he was until he hooked up with me. Uh, he answers questions on allexperts.com. dot com. He teaches a number of places, including the Culinary Institute of America and the Napa Valley College, and on places around the world. And Rick, of course, has written a couple of different books on the, the world of wine, including one that was a New York Times bestseller on our friends at Barefoot Sellers, longtime journalist, commentator on Capital Public Radio, and a consultant to wineries and restaurants. I have no idea why. Well, because I'm multi-layered. Because you're... And, and smooth. smooth. I'm smooth. And you reek of luxury. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> All right. Our first question is from Tracy Strong, who's become one of our regular listeners. That's why I think we are up to seven. Cool. Uh, Tracy is a lovely person because she listens to us. And C, by the way, folks out there, you ask us a couple questions, we will say nice things about you. So that's what that's what that's what you get. That's, that's your right. reward. Here's what she said. This is a good one too. You guys made fun of some critic who said a wine had red fruit, cherries, and red berries. Well, you can see why, since those are all kind of the same thing. Uh, so I'm wondering, Tracy asks, is cherry a berry? That's a really good question. I, as a food writer, knew the answer, but to, to make sure that um, I had it right, I went to the California Cherry Board for a description. And they didn't bore you? Uh, yeah, no, they, it was, it was, uh, there was a, I have a cherry joke in there that's not working out, so I'm, I'll move along. It was, okay. uh, um, here we go. <clears throat> um, it, cherry is, as it turns out, a cousin, distant cousin to fruits like peaches and plums and apricots. It's yes. actually also a cousin to almonds. Uh-huh. Well, certainly peaches are because yeah. that little nut inside the peach is right. very similar to an almond. Well, and it, and what's it's classified as a subset, by the way, of simple fleshy fruits. I is, have, by the way, been classified as a subset of simple fleshy fruits. I was going to say, that's a descriptor we've seen with wine, isn't yes. it? Simple yeah. fleshy fruits? Yes, especially the fleshy part. And yes. Also, <clears throat> also me. <laughs> a berry is defined as a fruit... Uh, which is entirely fleshy. That all of the meat of the berry is fleshy. There's no core. There's no. It could have lots of seeds, but no core. Okay. So as you can see, why cherries then wouldn't qualify as a berry because while they right. are fleshy, they do have that and little they bit have of the pit. They got the pit. They have the right? pit. So um, so there you go. By the way, the cherries kind of have an interesting history. They've been around for thousands of years. Thousands of years. They they like so many things. The area around the Black Sea is probably yep. where they originated. The Greeks crossing. and Romans. Yeah. 
Um, they came to America in the 1600s. The English colonists brought mm-hmm, them over. Mm-hmm. The Bing cherry, and that's kind of the fun one. The Bing cherry, in plant world, they call it a cultivar, but it really just means a blend. And it right. was developed in the 1870s by an Oregon horticulturist named Seth Llewelling. He's a kind of a hero up there. He's and, more than that because there is a lane in St. Helena, yes. in the Napa Valley, called Llewelling Lane, yes. which is where he eventually settled. And both he and his in-laws, who are named the Taplins, both make wine in the Napa Valley. And the ta- there's also a Taplin Road. There's a Taplin Road. Absolutely. So the man is something, as I say, something of legend. And as it turns out, so is his uh, foreman. His foreman was a Mandarin Chinese. His name was Ah Bing. Oh, how cool is that? So he named the cherry after his foreman. After his foreman. So, yeah. That's know. excellent. All right. So uh, there you go. And um, and now he has a search engine named after him. So the man is <laughs> a legend. True. He's doing well. Um, and as we know, though, cherry is not a good descriptor for wines that people are going to like. Or no, people, people won't like the cherry descriptor. No, it they doesn't. want black fruit, not red fruit. Yeah. So it's... Uh, Boy, you really, you actually did some research on uh, that. I'm impressed. It shocks me, ah, too. Ah, Bing. I'm telling you. Um, our next one comes from uh, Thomas Katz in Los Angeles. The sommelier at a restaurant suggested a wine he said was a declassified Bordeaux. He said it like I should know it, so I didn't ask. Does that mean something happened to it? Did it get worse? I ordered something else. <laughs> well, it's, it's... Okay, can I get you sideways <laughs> just for a second? Because Thomas, Please sir... Do. That's the way to go, by the way. If you know, if a guy is messing with you, or you just don't know, go somewhere else. Make him just. I would first say, I would say, make. I don't mean go somewhere else like a different restaurant, but you know, I first I'd say make him describe it, even yes. if he thinks you should know it. But yes, ask the question. What do you mean declassified Bordeaux? Yeah, yeah. Was it top secret? Yes. And now it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Um, so but, but do you want to tell doubt, him what declassified Bordeaux is, or shall I tell him what declassified well, Bordeaux is? Well, I'll start with classified, and you can tell him what happens, right? Okay. So, so there are, in Bordeaux, all kinds of ratings and classifications and— Regulations. Regulations, <laughs> and it's rules that Bo- that's the Bordeauxians, the Bordelais, wines they have to make to put their names, their, la- their names on the label. Right. But sometimes they have leftover juice. Right. That's oh. right. And that juice then cannot be released or— will not be released under the primary label. And let's use a really obvious example like Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. They have a very precise, specific vineyard in Bordeaux. They grow the fruit. They make the wine. The best wine becomes Chateau Lafitte Rothschild and sells for $500 to $1,000 a bottle. The, a lot of what's left over can possibly be blended together and released under what they call their second label, which is Carreau de Lafitte, which is significantly less expensive. Anything they got left over after that, they probably just ship out to a negociant or a blender who blends it together with a bunch of other stuff. And it is there, therefore theoretically wine from a classified region, in other words, a, a high-quality region. High-quality, highly regulated. But it isn't good enough to make it into the blend, so it gets declassified into this other stuff. Now, on the one hand, you think, wow, it means I'm getting Chateau Lafitte Rothschild at a fraction of the price. And the answer is, no, you're not, because Chateau Lafitte Rothschild is Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. This is the stuff that wasn't that good. Or at least wasn't good enough. Wasn't good enough. And it's blended with other stuff. It is also, when anybody uses a term like this, I always ask them, first of all, Blending wine at this point, by the time you get to this point, there are almost no regulations about what you can call it. 
So when you get something that's a declassified, I would ask the guy, so how much of this do you think came from what property? And then he'll tell you, oh, I have no idea. In which case, what you're really getting is a blended red wine from Bordeaux. And thank you very much. Yeah. And and the he and it sounds like the psalm was making it sound like this is this really special wine. The answer is, like with so many wines, maybe it is, maybe it's Depends not. Depends completely on what's yeah. in it and who made it. Yeah. So if he thinks it, if he thinks it's pretty good, then that's fine. If he doesn't, then... Uh, I say um, uh, declassify him. No, declassify I him? Yes, I don't right. know. All right, we have one more. This is from our enclave in Fresno. It's from Katie Madden. Good. And uh, she, too, is a lovely person because she asks us questions. All of our listeners yes. are magnificent people. They are. They are. She asks, do you have any tips for conducting a blind tasting at home? We've tried it, but some people get competitive about recognizing the wines, and then they get frustrated. Well, we could go... On at length. In fact, we should do a, a larger we'll do, show about we'll do a that. We have done on once before. Do we will, but very briefly, it's not about it's it's exa- that's exactly the wrong thing. It's not about com- competition. It's about com- comparison. That's well, what the, that's well, the and the other part about. is, Katie. Um, if people are getting competitive about it, invite different people. The easiest way to do a blind <laughs> tasting, absolutely guaranteed, eliminates all these problems. You know, most people say the best way to do a blind tasting, you put the bottles in bags, you pour the wines around in glasses, everybody tastes them, and they try to guess what it is. The easiest way is just put bags over the people's heads. Let them (laughs) taste the wine that way. Nobody gets competitive. It works perfectly. Trust me on this one, Kate. But really, without putting bags over your friends' heads, you know, the idea, the reason why we taste wines blind really is um, is that we want folks to be able to compare without... Without being influenced yes, by, by the, the label. Yes, by the label, the, right. the And, of price. course, these guys are desperately trying to get something right. Right. And so, the, you know, don't do it that way. Say that let's let's just rank the wines in terms of how right. much you like them. Right. And then yes. you'll learn something. That's really what you'll do. You'll learn uh, something Another way to do this is to suggest that, in you know, a lot of times when you organize a blind tasting at home, what you do is you, you ask everybody to bring a bottle. And then they all want to recognize their, their own, own bottle. bottle. Right, right, right. Easy, easy, uh, one way to avoid that, you provide all the wine. Yeah, so, have, yeah, yeah, it's a little more expensive. Or have them have everybody chip in, you know, 10, 15 bucks or something but like then that. Yeah, you yeah. provide all the wines. Nobody has a dog in the fight. That takes away some of the competitiveness. It also eliminates people who think they know what they're drinking because they don't know anything about this now. Yeah. And, and, and the next time you do it, it's at somebody else's house. They pick up the tab. It works. And it's really hard. We, I mean, that we we have we have done <clears throat> a, a whole show on. Uh, the fact that tasting blind is really difficult. We'll so, taste blind one day on the show, and we'll show people how hard it is. Yes. Well, as not that you would expect us to be good at it anyway, but that's <laughs> it. All right. That's it for questions. Uh, we'll have more in the second half of the show. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. Coming up, a little bad wine writing, so brace yourself. We'll be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Yep, yep, that means brace yourself indeed because we've got some bad wine writing and some bad wine writing choices. Paul, what's yours? Well, the word of today is chewy. I don't know what it means. Like Chewbacca? Like Chewbacca, very hairy wine. Yes. Yeah, big, yes. hairy, speaks uh, no, an unintelligible uh, uh, language. Sounds like a wine writer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it's, a wor- it's a word that means nothing, and it's generally they probably think it is sort of big and dense. But Well, really, and actually, it's yeah. often used to describe tannins, 
which are, of course, too small to chew. Right. But the theory is that your mouth feels so covered with rough sandpaper that you want to chew off the sides of your mouth. There's got to be a better way to say this than to call a wine chewy. Yeah. Mm, And often they mean it. They like it. Yes. Uh, well, mine is uh, a guy who just wandered off. A polished entry of lingonberry, a generously proportioned mid-palate, robust polished tannins, and a long lingering finish of East Asian spices and beechwood smoke. Okay. Is this Budweiser? I know. Well, here's the thing. So, first okay. of all, lingonberries are related to cranberries, and they taste just like cranberries. So if the guy wanted to say it, he could have just gone with cranberries. No, but then people would have known what he was talking about. Yeah, that's true. And here's the thing about beech. Beech is, they use it for smoking things like barrels, is because it burns clean and long and has no No. extra smoke, no extra flavor. No extra flavor. Yeah, so it's exactly the wrong thing. If if this guy's tasting beach, he's... he's, Which is why they use it in beer, because it doesn't add flavor to the beer. That's right, and that's why it's beach with So it has a long, lingering finish of East Asian spices and nothing. And nothing. That's it. Excellent. Speaking of nothing, we will be back in the second half of the show (laughs) with more questions. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Ah, so regal, so important. It's history time. We are taking the way back machine. We are way backing. So where does your machine take us? Well, you know, we were talking earlier today about brioche. Ah, yes. And how critics really like brioche in wine. And there's a connection to all of this because, you know, that old saying that when Marie Antoinette was informed by that the starving peasants in France... And she said, let them eat brioche. She actually didn't say, let them eat cake. She actually said, let them eat brioche. And now it turns out that brioche is one of the most popular words for wine critics who like wine. I'm wondering if it isn't time, off with their heads. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you know, poor Marie Antoinette. Well, not really, but but there was a different... It meant something differently, too, because what it was was these brioche was sort of these loaves that that she was associating with another kind of bread. But someone who really was just sort of at the wrong place at the wrong time and got blamed for stuff that— yeah. yeah, pretty clueless all the way around. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, her. I think the crime was clueless. I guess crime but, was clueless. Uh oh, Rick. If, oh, if, we were, no, no. There go if our that's heads. A capital offense. We're dead men. <laughs> yes, that is exactly right. I am taking the wayback machine out to 1801. Okay. As, as long as we are, as long as we're in sort of Napoleonic words okay. times. Thomas um, Jefferson is president of the United States. Yes, but we're in France. We're in France. Okay. It's the. Uh, I'll, your wife will kill me even worse, but the Trust sur la Vigne, or the Treatise of the Vine. It was written by a Napoleonic minister, and I love this guy because he's got three first names, John Antoine Claude Chaptal. And, of course, we know about Chaptal. Well, that's where we're going. Are we? Yes. How exciting. Uh, I know. So no, otherwise being notable for those three first names, 
He was also a Chemex. Yeah. And he wrote about the use for sugar in winemaking. Now, remember, this is before they really had the details of winemaking down. Remember down. that they didn't know about yeast. That's right. Exactly right. They didn't really know what fermentation was. But this guy right. was you know, helping figure out how the process worked. And he did not claim to invent this, by the way. He didn't say, I'm the guy. Um, but uh, he's the one that said, you know, adding sugar to this process right. would get you higher larger, alcohols. bigger, higher alcohol wines, and wines yes. that actually would hang around for a while. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, And the word now is chaptalization, which is... Which is Mr. Chaptal. Yeah, Mr. Chaptal. And it you is, can see it's shorter than Jean-Antoine Claude chaptalization. Yes, or Jean-Antoine Claudeization would have worked, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, it, it was that was a, a kind of a, a thing that mattered, too, because sugar was rare... In Europe until really yes. the 1600s. Yep. You know, remember, you know, sugar, they were getting sugar from things that were sweet, so you needed warmer weather. And it wasn't really until they, they settled the colonies. We're yes. talking the 1600s and the 1700s. Sugar cane. Sugar cane. And then later on, they discovered that beets also could produce the same kind of thing. Yep. So sugar mattered. Yep. So that's our man. So cool. you hear that phrase, chaptalization. Ooh. That's what Just it is. don't chaptalize your brioche. Do not. Well, no, you do. And then you toast it. A little sugar on top. <laughs> oh, and it's, nice. Yeah. All right. Okay. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We promised you more questions. We are going to deliver you more questions when we come right back. And next week, by the way, ask that person asking the question could be you. All you need to do is go to rickandpaulwine.com. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are taking a few more questions. A reminder one more time, you can ask us a question. We will give you credit on the air or not as you see fit because we know some people that don't want to be associated. rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe. One little bitty click. Our first one comes from Santa Gutierrez in Oceanside. Uh huh. She says, "This is a new area for her. We're expanding into new markets." Yeah, or somebody accidentally clicked on us on iTunes. But either <laughs> right. way, yeah. So that's Oceanside. That's down near San Diego. I was at a wine and food pairing dinner at a restaurant that had some white French wines that were from 2006 and 2007. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's heard us. I've heard you guys say most white. White wines we should drink young. But these were really good. They weren't really fresh, but they were really good. So? So? So what? Sandra, we're wrong. Okay, we admit it. Next question. All right. Well, it depends. And as you said, they were French white wines. They were probably made a little differently than, than many of the American wines that are made to be drunk fresh. And Sandra was pretty lucky because I suspect what she was drinking was some pretty good wine from France. I'm and guessing that as well. And if you get some fairly expensive wines from France that were made well in 2006 and 2007, they're eight, nine years old right now, and they should be drinking really nice great white burgundies, great white wines from Alsace. Um, Alsace, Those right, are going right. to be tasting really nicely now. The the challenge is n- no producer makes very much of them. They cost $30, $50, a $100 a bottle. But if Sander was at a winemaker dinner and had these wines, boy, she, good for her. Yeah. Why and is she listening to us if yeah. she's drinking wines like well, that? She's, she's, we, we, we want to validate that it's okay. What, you know, and what makes we, we talk about this a lot, what makes uh, wines age, and whites in particular, it's a little bit of sugar, and, or sugar and, and acid are uh, two uh, things in the wines. So wines like, well, these were French. I mean, wines like Riesings can age a long, age a long time because they're higher in acid and higher in sugar. I, as you said, all sauce might have been one of the places because those yep. wines come out with a little good acidity and some, and really some sugar. Good, really good But acidity. also even some of the whites from around France, they, they tend to make them 
with more acid than American yep. wines. So yep. the, 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 especially the good they ones, stay fresher. there's going to be a, a bit more of that. Yep. Sandra, uh, next time you get invited to a dinner where they're pouring eight or ten-year-old really nice French wines, you just let us know. We'll show up. Yeah. And, uh, and also, uh, thanks for actually remembering what we were saying. That's yes, more than we do. Yeah. All, right. All right. So this next one was not actually a question to the show, but okay. it was a question from a young guy who was working at my local Trader Joe's. Excellent. And what I like about this question is that he brings up, he did this thing. He's, you know, he, he knows that I work for Capital Public Radio, the lovely right. folks who are allowing us to use their studios. Yes. He knows that I do some wine for them. And so he said, hey, I got a question. He says... I was at a dinner and I really liked this wine and it had that thing and he did that, you know, I, I'm that mouth. You got stuff in your mouth like you got almost like you got peanut butter on the roof of your mouth movement, uh-huh, and uh-huh. you know it's the dry mouth smacking movement. He, he says, so what is like that? Like sand in your mouth. Yeah, he says, what is that? What kind of wines do that? Okay. So, you know, what he basically did was he sort of in a really um, clean way or really exact way. Asked a question that you and I probably get a lot. I know I certainly do from yep. folks that want to know what it is about that wine, and I liked yep. it. So what does that mean? And he said, "What kind of wine should I be getting?" And I'm, you know, we're out the door. There's a long line. I can't really describe it. I said, "Well, it's it's something called Tannin Drink Cabernet." <laughs> you know, I got to go enough. see you, see you, man. Yep. You know, but so let's talk a little bit about that 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 thing that is because uh, we talked a little bit about that uh, when we yep. were talking about the, the, sort of the the words that people like. Right. It. Tannins are good, bad, large. I mean, they mean a lot. They mean different things to different people. But they give wine something that, that in the wine world calls structure. Right. And it's a good. It's a good thing. It's, it's like one of the things that makes wine different from grape juice. Yes. It's exactly it has a little more seriousness to it. Right. And and a way to think about that is exactly the difference between a rich a grape juice and wine is that it's got. It's almost like the the flavors have some definition to them in wine. Right. Another way to think about it is the difference between, say, a an herbal tea like chamomile, and black tea. Black tea seems to have a little more power. A little. A lot of that comes from that the phenolics. Those are the tannins. That's the structure in the tea. Right. And and what structure means is a is it a way? I mean, almost one way to to think about it is it's almost like the 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 wine itself is. It's got architecture, or, or you know, it's 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 architecture is not the right word. It's like defined, you know. It's it's, and and talking about tea or coffee, I always say talk about the difference between hot coffee and sort of just really lukewarm coffee. It's got you, know, you put milk in and just went blah. Is that hot coffee seems to be, you know what I mean when I'm saying structure? It seems as if there's sort of a definition to the coffee. It's got some texture to it as well as flavor. That you, know, you lost me, but you just keep going. So um, you know, I mean, I, well, I, you're not a coffee drinker. No, I'm not a coffee drinker. So, but that hot coffee has structure. You know that there's a texture as well as flavor. Where's uh-huh, that uh-huh. that lukewarm? I think that's bland, the key. Yeah, texture that, and flavor. Yes, and it is. I think it that's is a texture. Key. That's what we mean. They go together. When we say structure is that it has texture and flavor. There, you know, it's interesting. Where does this stuff come from? It actually comes from the seeds and skins of the grape. And there is a technique as you taste grapes uh, at getting close to harvest to find out whether they're ripe or not. There are two parts to that. One of them is, of course, if they're ripe, you'll notice the sugar level going up. But if you watch winemakers taste grapes, they'll take a few grapes off of a bunch and they'll chew them up a little bit and then they'll spit everything out because if you keep chewing, 
this tannin can be really pretty strong and powerful in your mouth. I mean, it really is kind of bitter. As the grapes get riper, those tannins start to get ripe as well. And good winemakers will go out there, and in the last few days before harvest, they'll really actually start chewing down on those seeds to see, are they still bitter or are they beginning to soften up and taste a little nutty? A good example is a walnut. You've had that walnut where you bite into it, and it's so tannic that you're just saying, "Mm, mm, 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 mm." but uh, that's as they get riper and as that walnut gets more perfect, you chew it up, and it has a little of that. That's why it goes so well with chocolate. It kind of balances the sweetness. But those ripe grape seeds, when you start chewing them and they taste a little more like walnuts and a little less like bitter something or other. Tea bags. Tea bags. Yeah. Then your grapes are about ready to pull off the vine. Yeah. And, you know, this it gets to, in, in, in a way, too, it gets to the, the art of growing grapes and making wine is, you know, it on the one hand, it can be very simple. But yep. when we start to talk about what makes, it's why it's, why it's such a fascinating sport, you know, is that is that there are these really little, it's seemingly little differences that make a great deal of difference to the wine. In the final product. Right. And so, you know, you've got these experienced winemakers and experienced uh, viticulturists who, you know, the grapes are totally sweet. You know, folks like us, you and I would walk out there and go, "Mm, yummy. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Give me more. Yeah. yeah. But when they're saying, you know, not ready. And and what happens is they don't evolve at the same time. And it's also part of the art. The flavors evolve. You think about a fruit ripening, right? It's a peach, it's a grape, whatever. Yep. Lots of acid is to keep the birds from eating them until they're ripe. So then, when the grape has has uh, has gotten ripe enough, they will birds will spread the seeds, so to speak. Um, but just because the the sugars are high, the flavors are there, doesn't necessarily mean that the wine is going to be great. Right? It might be a delicious eating grape, but right. it's not. And right. and that's the thing is, winemakers know that what we need is this next thing. So my yeah. they my have friend to taste I, grapes and think what's going to be here four years from now. Yeah, I sure. I wish per- I could remember this guy's name because he was a good guy, and I've seen him there a lot. You know, and everybody Trader Joe's so nice. Yeah. Um, but he, I loved the way he described it because this is a a new wine drinker. He's a pretty young guy. That's right. Right. And and he was he was falling for one of the little things about wine that's magic, yep. and so you know this is this word tannin gets thrown around so much. We just yeah. did a show where we talked about all the different ways people kind of bastardize the word. Yep. You know, can you say that on the air? You can, as okay. long as I have the eyes in there. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it is it is a thing that uh, it is. One of the the things that basically for yourself, dear wine drinker, is is to taste a few of them and and find the range of which you like. Right. You know, and and then the same thing is and then you take out your cell phone because remember, I'm the guy that says take out your cell phone, take pictures of wine you like. Right. And this helps establish sort of a range for. Yep. For wine. Okay. Well, that's a long answer. To a smacking good, question. A good question. It was a very good question. A, a, a nonverbal question. A nonverbal question. What is? <laughs> yes. You know, I ask a lot of my questions that way. Actually. <laughs> just making, I just make sounds. What else we got? All right. This is from Karen Brown uh, of Gold River. We've had a Brown ask us a question. That the, the previous Brown in another show was uh, my niece. This is her mom, my sister. Oh, okay. This is. It was her name. Spencer was your niece. It was Minnie Spencer. This is this is my sister-in-law, Karen, who is, by the way. A very loyal fan of the show. Excellent. Karen. Good to uh, know. But, and it is because she's a good sister-in-law, and she has been a, a, an out a, against all odds supporter of so many things that I've done. And she really is a smart person, and yet— And yet, and she yet, hangs with you. I do not know why. She is a good family member. <clears throat> but she asked a good question. Uh, why do I get headaches with bad champagne but not with good ones? 
Yeah. Well, I think this is this is not just with bubbly. Right. This but, but, is with lots of products. And there But the bubbly <clears throat> is a, one of the reasons. Adds yes, yes. part of the reason. Yeah. There are, there are, I'm going to give you two reasons and Rick is probably going to add a third that I'm not sure I believe, but that's okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Reason number 1. All bubbly gives you a headache quicker or gets you drunk quicker because the bubbles actually allow your body to absorb, absorb the alcohol right through your palate. doesn't have to get all the way down into your stomach before it starts hitting your head. So that's one thing about all bubbly products. Second thing is when you drink wine, when you have a truly magnificent wine in front of you that you know costs, whether it's 40 or 70 or $200 a bottle, you have a tendency to approach it with a certain amount of respect, care, and dignity. You are careful. You sip. You savor. When you have cheap stuff, you have a tendency to slug it down and go for the next glass. Speed kills when it comes to drinking alcohol. And when you drink inexpensive products, you have a tendency to drink them faster in bigger gulps, and that will add to your headaches. Well, I have actually two additional, two additional. that build on both of those. Yep. So one of them is, and I know, although certainly no events that I've been connected to, but we know that when we drink the cheap stuff, it's usually some wedding or party, right. and, and you're just, you know, you're hungry, you're there, they're right. pouring you, you haven't large eaten all day. you haven't eaten, right, and so right. you're chugging this stuff down. Yep. But there is another reason, and which is that those finer bubbles in the more expensive wines actually make you absorb the alcohol a little more slowly. Yeah. So those yeah. big those big clunky bubbles actually do also add to the the headache issue. Yep. So there there is a little of that, and then I think it's it's also just the the punishments of Bacchus for drinking the lousy wine. Don't drink the cheap yeah. stuff. And Karen, you you know where to get the good stuff. If you don't, give me a call. Yeah. Rick's uh, house. Yes. Yeah. If you're a loyal and, listener, he'll buy you a glass anytime you want. Yes. And also, you want it that was uh, that has beechwood smoke in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm reeks still, of luxury. I'm still chuckling over that one. And I have to say that it is what I liked about that description so much, because we get that so often, and it's you know it goes to this whole notion of the words that that go on the bottles and things. Right. But this that here's a guy who had no idea what he was talking about, but he was reaching for a word that would sound good. Yep, that's right. That's right. And that's he right. and I'm sure he got the Beechwood from the beer commercials. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, so yeah, in any case, okay. Well, that is it for the mailbag. And for more insults about bad wine running, even though we're going backwards, <laughs> um, if you'd like to ask us a question about wine, really, or you can ask us about Beechwood Smoke or anything, <laughs> go to rickandpaulwine.com. That is all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, we have a food and wine. Actually, we have a couple, a breakdown of food and wine pairings for you. Stay with us. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It is time for our food and wine pairing. I'm thinking, you know, taxes are due tomorrow. We Ouch. could we could do thanks uh, for bringing that we up. We could right? do boiled sole of shoe. There you go. But I thought we would there do we something go. that is genuinely better when it's handmade. Ah, handcrafted food. Handcrafted pizza. Pizza. Because pizza, you know, that the throne, really all good pizzas, they're, it's very hard to not make a pizza crust with your hands, but there are these sort of semi-machine roller outers that are, really do make some. Okay, but this is the handmade pizza. This is handmade, okay, handcrafted yeah. uh -huh. hand pizza. But pizza is, uh, you know, pizza comes Pizza's in. Pizza's like pasta. It is like pasta. There's many, many different kinds. It all depends on what you put on top. Yes. So let's break this down with a Okay, couple. what are you starting with? Let's start with the salty meat pizza. 
the pepperoni, sausage, yeah. those kinds of pizzas. Yeah. India Pale Ale. India Pale Ale. Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. No, yeah, pizza, right. yeah. meat pizza like that. Yeah. And beer. Great combination. And you know that India Pale Ale has the hops. Hops have tannin. The, and you get that bitterness, yeah. and you get the salty oil from the meat, and they cancel each other out. And I could eat a lot of that, and often do. Yeah, I was going to go Zinfandel. You're going to go Zinfandel. Zinfandel. My friend yeah. Zinfandel okay. is uh, is for those. I was uh, I was I did the beer thing when we were. I was out at lovely Napa Valley. Yes, at uh, one of the pizza places up in uh, in the lovely town of Calistoga, which I really do like, by the way. Uh-huh. And. Yeah. Um, and you know we're it was a bunch of us a gang we're hanging out you yeah. know and uh, the guys all got beer to go with the pizza yes and and the women all got uh, they, a very nice Zinfandel uh huh yeah I remember what it was actually it was Storybook Mountain oh yeah uh, which is right next I mean it's just up the hill up from the hill, Calistoga yeah. so and you're drinking the home brew man theirs was so much better than ours and wow. the beer was good but the it just went it went so well. So, yep. Yeah. So. Well, and and you know the um, you get the 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 only the only caveat the only worry I have there is if the pepperoni is really spicy mm. and the right and the same is alcoholic, alcohol, right. then it can make your mouth feel like it's on fire. Right. And and beer, it, it wasn't. It was salty, not spicy. So you're beer right. Beer yeah. is good for putting out fires in your mouth. Right. And that is actually a, a point that you know we we've made before, which is that spice and alcohol are really not a happy pairing. Right. Because they they both have give you that burning sensation. Yep. But this was the salt. So. It was the cool. saltiness that it reached. Cool. Yeah. Okay. okay. So what, other, what other ones you got? Veggie. What about the veggie pizza? So now we're talking, you know, the garden variety. Uh, are we talking variety, margarita? Well, well. I mean, pizza margarita is well, simple. Let's, let's do the pizza margarita because that is a lovely one. And then and then and I'm going to go to And it is, in fact, veggies. a vera pizza napolitana. So yeah. it's an absolute authentic Italian pizza, whereas some of these others are not so much. Yes. Uh, okay. So what do you pick? Well, uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking a Chianti Classic. Are you now? I am. Okay. Yeah. And here's yeah. why I'm thinking it. There's a little, you know, it, it is, it's the fruit. There's a nice structure. Yep. There's it's it's going to pick up the it. picks up. You know, those are the, picks up flavors that are from that region. Yep. Although the Napolitano is not from the region, but it is. Right. You know, but it, it's just it strikes me that it would it would do very well with the basil. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I'm going to go with something similar because well, at least it's from Italy anyway, which is Valpolicella. Hmm. I right. think it's, it's an underrated break. wine. But, yeah. Um, and it's next door neighbor Bardolini. Wouldn't you like to have a next-door neighbor named Bardolino? If you ever had a problem, you could walk over and say, Mr. Bardolino, I have a problem. I got an next-door neighbor, Bob. It's just not the same. (laughs) Um, But but these are wines that have nice, soft, red-to-black fruit. Am I, which word am I supposed to use that people will like? Black fruit. They don't Black like fruit, red fruit. Right, right, right. Um, but nicely balanced. Remember, the pizza margarita is relatively delicate. It's not a big, powerful pizza. So you want something that isn't too bone-crushing in terms of your red wines. But I'm get, is it lunchtime yet? Yeah, I know. You got me hungry. All right. And so what about the garden the garden veggies? You know, the bell peppers and the onions and right. the mushrooms. Right. And this one's drizzled with olive oil. Okay, sure. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what you do with those There's veggies. nothing wrong with that. You drizzle them with olive oil. Nothing wrong with Once that Once you all. throw in a little olive oil, then you need a little more acidity. Now, in this case, now I'm going yeah, go with Chianti. Chianti Classico or Barbera, something Barbera that has a little more, yeah. a little more uh, uh, acidity in the red wine. Yeah, that, that, well, that would be a, gra- a direction I would go to. I would also go with a richer white. Okay. So like a, like a rich Chardonnay. Uh-huh, I yep. think I think it would actually do well with it. Well, I've got one for you because last night my friend sat across the table from me and ate a smoked salmon. 
pizza, mm, mm. Uh, which was absolutely delicious. It is nowhere close to being an authentic Italian pizza. They don't have no, smoked no. salmon pizza no. in Italy. But this was a delicious, delicious pizza. And what I would have ordered with that was not a big, rich Chardonnay, but a bright, fresh Chardonnay um, that would have gone very nicely with the salmon. Or a Pinot Noir. Yeah, but I... I've done that. Chardonnay. For me, Chardonnay. And one last one quickly. Okay. My favorite pizza. Yes. Anchovy. Anchovy. Salt. We're talking salt here, folks. we are. And what salt allows you to do is have tannin. Because the salt will demolish the tannin in the wine and will take a wine that's got a little too much oomph to it and slice it right down. So you're, what else is on this pizza? Just anchovies well, you or you know, got you, other stuff? Yeah, you get your other stuff. The anchovies are going to dominate the pizza. They sure. are going to yeah, dominate yeah, the yeah. pizza. So I'm going to go, again, I like the lighter body style of the, the red wines uh, from Italy as opposed to California for these. But I'm thinking, again, Sangiovese, how about Vino Nobile de Montepulciano? Ah, I'm going in an entirely different direction. I'm sure you are. A nice Sauvignon Blanc. Wow. I've done that and liked okay, it. Okay, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And what you, it is— Because you're eating the fish there. Well, yeah, it is this fish thing, but the yeah. salt and the acidity— Sure, they, you're they, eating the fish and you got the lemon. Yeah. What else do you want? Yeah, it goes really well. Sure. Well, and that's us. We're kind of a lemon. <laughs> and that's another round of bottle talk, which was probably kind of a lemon. <laughs> Our engineer is Matt Bassini, as thanks, always. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. And thanks to Capital Public Radio for the serial use. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free, one little click. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's don't say the words handcrafted around Paul (laughs) unless you got a pizza. Unless it's a pizza. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Remember the best wines you drink with friends. Or with us. Especially us.